If you have your Bibles, I would like you uh, to open to chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to read straight through the entire passage and pray, and then we'll dive right into unpacking what it is that God wants to teach us today. Mark 7, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, do, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Church, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful for your word that is given to teach us and encourage us and train us in righteousness. But God, we're also thankful for your word on the days when there's a word of correction and a word of rebuke given. God, we do not want to live by our own intuitions or live by our own rules or live by uh, the things that we believe or feel or imagine. We want to live by the truth of your word. God, I pray today as we read this, this strong passage in which Jesus offers a, a word of rebuke, God, I pray that each and every one of us would have soft hearts, would have hearts that are willing to listen, willing to self-examine, to see if there is any unclean way in us. And we also rejoice in Jesus, the one who purifies us from all sin and all unrighteousness. It's in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. I wonder if you have any particular traditions that you hold to in your family, in your community, maybe your ethnic background. 
Maybe you have some traditions that are kind of fun and lighthearted, like uh, some friends of mine who every year, their big Christmas dinner, their big Christmas feast, they have tacos, a taco Christmas dinner. Now, I laughed, I giggled at it when I first heard about it until I had it, and I thought, that is brilliant. That's way better than turkey, uh, tacos, Christmas. And you think, are they Hispanic family? No, they're Norwegian. That's fine. Uh, Christmas tacos. Maybe you have some other traditions that are maybe a little bit more sorrowful or, or a, a memory of a pain, like some other friends of mine who every year on the, the birthday of their child go and visit the gravesite to commemorate the day that that child was born even though they were only with them for a short time. We have various traditions that can be joyful, various traditions that can be sorrowful, but at their heart, they're meant to have meaning. They're meant to have purpose. A tradition for the sake of tradition is a very unpleasant thing. And some of you know that because you have relatives or aunts or members of your community that hold you to these traditions and you don't have any idea why you do them. And today, that really is the theme and the subject of our study. Jesus, in his confrontation with the Pharisees over their empty traditions, their empty customs, not only heartless, but man-made and elevated above the Scripture. So I invite you to be reflective today. I invite you to assess your own heart as we see this word of rebuke that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. So if you've got your Bible, follow along. Otherwise, we will have the verses up on the screen Picking up in verse 1. What are these traditions? What are these customs? Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, let me just pause briefly and tell you, the Pharisees were one of the um, religious-slash-political parties that were uh, active during the time of Jesus. The other one was the Sadducees. So sometimes you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This time it's the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the more conservative. You know how we have kind of, in our country, Republican and Democrat? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's close. It's not exact, but it's kind of like that. The Pharisees were more strict. They were more conservative. And they have a group following them called the scribes. The scribes were experts in the law. Many of them would have very likely had the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy committed to memory. So these legal scribes were very knowledgeable about the law. These Pharisees were very knowledgeable about the law. And it says they had come from Jerusalem. So they weren't just hanging around. They didn't just happen to be there. They were on a mission. They were either sent or decided of their own volition to go after Jesus. Why is he so popular? Why is he creating such a stir? Why are so many people coming out to hear his teaching? We need to investigate. So that's what they're here to do. They'd come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, lest you jump ahead of me, uh, I would just by way of introduction, say it's a good idea to wash your hands before you eat, so we're not going to throw aside that part, okay? But here's the thing. We get this parenthesis from Mark, writing this book, understanding under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there will be men and women like you and I who are Gentile, we're not Jewish in our background, and so we may not understand the customs, and so Mark explains to us what these customs are. It's more than just washing your hands before you eat. Here's what he says, for the Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders. Hold on to that. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels 
and dining couches. I don't exactly know how you wash your dining couch, but I imagine it is something like the hazmat team that I need after my two-year-old has eaten and I have to clean up the chair where she'd been sitting, right? Any of you parents of young kids know what I'm talking about. There's all of these traditions and there's all of these customs that have come up that are not part of the word of God. Now, let me explain to you. If you've never read the Old Testament, I highly recommend that you do it. It is the word of God. In many places, some of it, though, will feel a little unfamiliar because, in particular, the Old Testament law was given to a nation. So there's moral laws, and there are civil laws, like how they're to govern themselves, and there are ceremonial laws, how they are to conduct their worship services. And in the law of Moses, in the Old Testament, there are laws about cleanliness and washing and purity. Some of them uh, make a lot of sense even from a practical standpoint, some of them are uh, a little, maybe even gross. Can I use that word? For example, there are laws about how to clean mold and mildew out of your house. Did you know that's in the Bible? Instructions on cleaning mildew, okay? So any of you kids fighting against your mom's like, I don't want to clean. It's in the Bible, right? Scrub the shower, right? There are laws about what to do uh, with various bodily discharges, okay? I'll just leave it at that, but that's in the Bible. There's even a law about... When soldiers go to war and there's thousands of men all in one camp, where you should go to the bathroom and bury it so that the camp doesn't get disgusting and stink as a group of thousands of men would be prone to do, right? There's laws. I mean, you read the Bible, you think, that is, that's odd. You don't often come to church and expect the pastor to stand up and read you verses about where to go to bury your, your, when you've relieved yourself, right? Like that's not what you'd expect, but it's in the word of God. And I would actually say, upon further reflection, I don't think it's odd. I don't think it's odd for two reasons. First of all, some of it's just very practical, like I said. How many of you parents have ever had to have some kind of awkward and uncomfortable conversations with your children about cleaning and body parts and discharges and all those sorts of things? Like a good father, God is teaching his children, God is teaching his people some very practical things. You have to remember, they're a nomadic culture. They're living in the desert. They didn't have uh, you know, spas and you know, lotions and all those sorts of things. It was, it was partly practical, but the real purpose, the real purpose is it was an object lesson. God wanted to teach his children, God still wants to teach his children, that sin is gross. That our sinfulness before God is as defiling as bodily discharges, mildew, excrement, all of those things. In fact, there's a, there's a section in the, in the prophetic book of Zechariah in which Zechariah, the high priest, is, is shown to be prophetically, he's shown to be standing before the presence of God, and the high priest was supposed to cleanse themselves. They would literally have to wash for a week and be separated from the people for a week so that they wouldn't be unclean, and it says that he's standing in front of God, and his high priestly garments are covered, soiled with human excrement. That on our own, our sinfulness is gross. So the purity laws were given, yes, for a practical benefit, but really to teach us about the nature of God who is holy and pure. Amen? There's no sin in him. There's no defilement in him. He is pure. And our sin is defiling and staining and, if I could use that word, gross. So that's what the purity laws were aimed at. But here's the thing. The Laws were set up. God, it's almost like God says, here's, here's a line. Don't cross this line. Here's a fence. This, this is good and this is not good. Don't go there. 
And some people, these elders, the traditions of these elders, would then say, well, we don't want to cross the line that God drew, so let's back up a couple steps and let's draw another line and let's make another couple of rules. And then some other guys came and said, well, that's good, but you could cross that line and still cross the line of God. So let's back up another step and let's make some more lines. Let's back up another step and let's make some more lines. And before long, there were all sorts of rules and rituals and practices that did not come from God himself, but had the same weight and had the same authority in the minds and in the practices of many of the people. So it wasn't just that you had to wash in a certain way before you worshiped God. It became you had to wash your hands after you came from the market and you had to wash the cups and the pots and the copper vessels in a certain way or else you were thought of as being displeasing to God. You were thought of as being displeasing to God. They set up fences around the fences to make sure nobody ever broke the rules. And I would say to you, that before we throw stones or think how foolish are they, we are so prone to do the same thing. Our hearts are fearful sometimes. We don't want to break God's law. And I, I would even say this. I believe that much of that actually would come from a good heart or at least a, a, an understandable heart of saying, I don't want to break God's law, so let's put up safeguards against it. But, but here's the thing. When your trust is in the rules, when your trust is in the safeguards and not in God himself, then you are on dangerous ground, Amen. Somebody might ask the question looking at this because Jesus is about to give a pretty stern rebuke. Is Jesus anti-tradition? Is Jesus anti, you know, rituals or tradition? Uh, if, you, if you are aware, there are certain church groups, aberrant Christian groups, not Orthodox Christian groups, but church groups that will say things like, you should not celebrate holidays, you should not celebrate birthdays, you shouldn't do any of those sort of special celebrations because that's ritualistic and it's displeasing to God. And I say nonsense. I do not believe that Jesus is anti-tradition, okay? I'll give you four reasons. First, Jesus is the same God of the Bible who gave the people of Israel all of the routines and the rituals in order that they might worship him. So Jesus is God. It's not like sometimes you hear where there's like an Old Testament cranky God who has all these rules and routines and rituals you're supposed to follow and then New Testament happy Jesus and it's just lollipops and free time all the time, right? It's the same God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our Jesus is the God of the Bible from the first page to the last, amen? So Jesus cannot be anti-tradition in that sense because he's the same God who gave the people of Israel the certain traditions the biblical ones, in the first place. Second of all, I don't believe that Jesus is anti-tradition because we see that he did celebrate the festivals. He celebrated the Old Testament festivals. There's, there's a handful of different festivals that the people of God were instructed to keep every year to remember certain occasions where God did something miraculous and Jesus celebrated all of them. Third, we see multiple places in the New Testament where it says Jesus would often go away to pray by himself. Jesus would often retreat to lonely places. So Jesus had personal traditions. He had personal rhythms set up in which he would take time away to just go be with the Father. And then fourth, this one might blow some of your minds, but it shouldn't. Did you know that not only did Jesus celebrate the biblical festivals, the ones that we actually find in scripture, but Jesus celebrated a particular festival that is not commanded in scripture called Hanukkah. How do I know that? I'm glad you asked, thank you. John 10, 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. 
The Feast of Dedication is another name for the holiday that we now know as Hanukkah. It, it, it commemorates something that happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You won't read about the story of Hanukkah in the Bible. It's, it's not in the Bible. It happened in Israel in between the time. There's a, about 400 years where the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a gap. And one of the, one of the uh, foreign kings, kings of Syria, came in, destroyed the Jews, conquered them, ruled them in an incredibly blasphemous and merciless way, including trying to force the high priest to eat unclean foods, and he refused, so they killed him. He was, I mean, he was just wicked, wicked to the heart. A group of men raised up, man, their leader was named Judah, Judah Maccabees, Judah the Hammer, and he fought the Syrians, got rid of them, they went back into the temple, cleaned it out. They, they had a dedication ceremony. They're going to rededicate the, the temple. They go to light the candle. There's only enough oil for one day. Now you're starting to get into familiar territory. It burns for eight days. It's a miracle. God provided. Hooray, let's have a holiday. Let's celebrate it. And Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Now, why do I say all of that? I just say that simply to tell you that Jesus is not anti-tradition. So the next time you're ultra-religious, legalistic friend gives you, uh, uh, some, you know, gives you a hard time for celebrating Thanksgiving, you can just say, hey man, John 10, 22, bro, go look it up, okay? I want you to understand that Jesus is not anti-tradition for tradition's sake, but I will tell you this. Jesus is anti-heartless tradition, and Jesus is anti-elevating man-made traditions above the word of God. And it's at this point I want to introduce to you the word religion, Sometimes we use the word religion in a good sense. The Bible uses the word religion in a good sense sometimes. Religion uh, that God finds pleasing is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. There's a good part of religion, meaning being regular, being faithful, being committed, being dedicated. But the majority of the time when the Bible talks about religion, there's a, there's a negative sense to it. There's a negative ring. And so let me just briefly explain to you, when I say religion, I mean it in the negative sense, four aspects of what that means. The first one is this. Religion in the negative sense means it's heartless and unconcerned routine. If you want another word for it, it just means you're just going through the motions. You're doing the things, but you just don't care. Okay? Uh, you know, by, by way of a, of a more uh, secular analogy, it's like you go to your family's house every Christmas. Why? Because Not because you want to be there, but just because you have to be there. That would be a religion in the negative sense in our lives. In the spiritual sense, in our worship to God, we can be religious where we come to church, we take communion, we sing the songs, but we just have hearts that are uncaring and cold. The second aspect of religion that is uh, in the negative sense, it means it's rules-focused, not God-focused. It doesn't ask the question, what would bring delight to the heart of my God? It asks the question, what are the rules I gotta keep and how far can I go up to the line and when have I crossed the line and what's the other rule? The third thing about religion is pride and looking down on others because you're doing so well. And I didn't put it on the slide here, but you know the flip side to that pride coin is despair because all of a sudden you're not doing well and then you start despairing. And the fourth aspect of religion in this negative sense is your acceptance is based on your performance. You feel like if I do a good job, God will love me. If I don't do a good job, then I'm not loved and I'm a failure. So when I use religion, the majority of the time, I am using it in this negative sense. And I want you to understand that. This is what Jesus is so, uh, I can use the word angry, righteously angry with the Pharisees about. He is angry at their dead, heartless religion. 
So let's keep looking here, picking up in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of, who is it? The elders, not the scripture, the elders. But they eat with defiled hands. You need to understand here that Jesus is not breaking any of the laws of God. He is simply breaking one of their man-made traditions. Jesus in his life broke none of the laws of God. And for that we rejoice because that means his perfect life made him be an acceptable sacrifice to God on the cross, meaning our sins can truly be forgiven. Jesus' perfect, morally perfect life is incredibly important for you and I. But here he has just broken one of the traditions of their elders. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, here we go, watch out. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Ouch. Hypocrites uh, in the Greek comes from the word for actor, and they would wear a mask. In that culture, in the, in the theater, the men would play all the roles, men, women, everybody. And so they would wear a mask, and that mask would be uh, descriptive of your character as you're acting. So what Jesus is saying, this became a, 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 an insult. It became a term of, of uh, put down, meaning you're, you look one way on the outside, but underneath you're totally different. You're a hypocrite. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. So Jesus identifies two problems. The first one is your hearts are far from me. And the second problem is you've elevated commandments of men above the commands of God. We're gonna explore that second problem in a minute, but I wanna just for a moment talk about the heart. It says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In our culture, 21st century American culture, when I use the word heart, most people will think that I'm talking about what? The emotions, the affections, your feelings, right? You think of, you think of certain songs like, uh, you know, my heart will go on, right? Pastor Joe's favorite song, right? Celine Dion. Or Pastor Travis's favorite song, Achy Breaky Heart, right? Like you just... You can think about lots of songs that use heart and it means my feelings and how I feel about you and my emotions. When the Bible uses the word heart, the biblical authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they mean something that includes the emotions but is bigger and more central than just the emotions. I'm gonna read you from uh, Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Here's, here's how they put it. They say the heart in the scripture, the heart is the source or the spring of motives. It's the seat of the passion. So it does include the emotions. It's the center of the thought processes. It's the spring of the conscience. Heart, in fact, is associated with what is now meant by the cognitive, that's thinking, affective, that's your feeling, and volitional, or your choice, your will, elements of your personal life. And actually, as you notice, I even did, I, I, I even just slipped into it myself. I said cognitive, and I pointed to my head. Because in our culture, thinking comes from the brain, at least what thinking there is. In the Bible, thinking actually comes from the heart. Let me give you some examples. There are hundreds of examples, but I just want to give you six really briefly. First, we see that the heart is a reference to the inner life. 1 Samuel 16 in verse 7, the people of Israel are trying to select a king. They have a guy that they really like. You know why they like him? Because he's tall and he's good looking. 
And God speaks to the prophet Samuel and he says this, do not look upon his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Here it is. The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, the inner man, the the core of who he is. The heart does include the emotions. Proverbs 15, 13, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, and but by sorrow of heart, the spirit of, is crushed. So where our culture almost exclusively uses heart for emotions, the Bible would use it as one of the things included in the heart. Number three, thoughts. The thinking, like I said. There I did it again. I pointed at my head. I'm, I'm going to have to point at my heart now. Psalm 139, verse 23, says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart, Try me and know my thoughts. Knowing that, if you know anything about Hebrew poetry, you know that that's a, uh, a parallel statement meant to be synonymous with one another. Try me and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Here the heart and thoughts are lined up with each other. Desires, Proverbs 23, 17. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Let not your heart envy. What is it that you want? What is it that you desire? What is it that you're looking for? Number five is the will and the volition. This is in Deuteronomy 10. Like your choice, what it is that you will, you you choose of your own volition. This is what it says about God. It says, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. So it was God's heart that led him to choose a people to call them out of darkness, to call them unto himself. And then lastly, famous verse from Matthew 6, 21, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself says this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is it that motivates you? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that causes you to do what you do? You're not just a robot. You're not just a machine. You don't just do things because that's how you were programmed. You want something. You desire something. I had a conversation with a member earlier this week and we were talking together and praying through just some areas of sin in his life and and I asked him the question. I said, you have this sin and we can point to this behavior as sin. I said, but what is it really underneath that you want? You don't actually want this sin. There's something that is driving you. There's something you desire. There's something underneath. There's a sin underneath the sin to use the language of Pastor Tim Keller. And we would be wise to ask ourselves that same question. What is it that I want? And so when Jesus is speaking of the heart, he wants you to know that it's what drives you. It's not just that you don't feel emotions, it's that your motivations, your thoughts, all of it would be far from God. So this first problem with the Pharisees is that their actions do not come from a worshipful heart. Their actions look good on the outside, but they're not motivated from a heart to please God. It's probably more to look good in front of people to feel good and prideful about their own accomplishments or maybe any number of different motivations. Their keeping of the traditions does not come from a worshipful and a humble heart, grateful to God for his many blessings. That's, the, that's not the only problem. That's the first problem. The second problem is tradition over scripture. Let's keep reading. Verse nine, he says to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the command. You see the sarcasm in there? That is just interesting to me. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
And now Jesus goes into uh, an argument, and I'll explain this to you as we go. Moses said, Jesus quotes the scripture, he quotes the Old Testament, speaking authoritatively. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Uh, where is that found, church? Ten commandments, right? Ten commandments, a good one to, to commit to memory. Moses said, honor your father and mother. And he said, whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. All of the kids in the audience, just uh, their ears perked up a little bit. Praise God, we don't live under the old covenant law, right? Because it literally says, if you curse your father and mother, you could be put to death. You don't have to be, but you could be put to death. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Here's, here's the deal. The Bible instructs children to honor Love, respect, care for their parents. And that includes financial provision for parents in their latter years. That is Old Testament and New Testament. So everybody in the room under the age of 40, listen to me. There is a God-given desire, God-given, I'll even use the word mandate, a command for us to care for our parents in their latter years. And this is the case here. But a tradition came up. This tradition called korban, which means given to God. So the tradition goes a little something like this. I have this money. I have these possessions. I am going to give them to God. I'm going to give them to the temple. And now I have done this really wonderful thing that looks super righteous and super holy because I just gave all of my money to the temple and it is dedicated to God. And Jesus says, yes, and yet you are neglecting to take care of your father and your mother in their latter years with those financial provisions and you excuse it by saying, oh, I gave it to God. God. You see what's going on here? Something that looks super good. Oh, we just gave all of our money to the church can actually be used to dishonor God and his commandment. And Jesus says, many such things you do. Like, I just picked one example, dear Pharisees. I got more, but let's just leave it at one because that's particularly egregious. That's, that's shameful. You're saying, I want my money to go to God, and yet what God wants you to do is take care of your father and mother. And yet, again, I would say to us, are our hearts really that different? If you can't say amen, you can say ouch. Our hearts are not really that different. We like to find loopholes. We like to find ways to get around the commandments of God. We like to find things that, that suit our fancy. We, we elevate personal preferences. We elevate personal pleasures. We elevate uh, different things that we like above the commandment of God. I'll give you an example. Um, this last week, I had an opportunity to have lunch with a handful of pastors from the, around the Shoreline area, and the table I ended up sitting at for lunch had two younger pastors, myself and one other, and both of us in our 30s, and then two older, I didn't say old, I said older pastors in their 60s, right? Actually, they said old fogies, but that's not what I would say because that would be rude because there's older people here in the room. But they said, they were talking about, you know, their churches, and we're kind of checking on each other and how's church going, how's ministry going, and one of the guys said, yeah, I got, I, I got sent by my denomination to pastor a, a very older and, and aging and kind of dying off church. And he goes, so I've been really just trying to love these people, care for them well. He goes, but I didn't realize there were a lot of uh, 
you know, sacred cows I bumped into early on. He said, you know, we have to deal with these things. He said, you know, for example, his story, not mine, I'm just reporting. For example, he said, a uh, uh, new family came to church. They came and they sat, they came early, okay? Some of you need to take note. They sat in the second row and they had their, their spot kind of carved out and they sat there. The regular couple, the regular family who usually sits in that spot came in five minutes late, again, illustrative. Uh, the regular people came in five minutes late, looked at the new family sitting in their row, turned around and walked out and left and didn't participate in the church service for that day. Okay, there was a tradition. We sit in this spot and we are now going to negate the word of God, the command of God to gather together, to study the scriptures, to pray, to love one another, to be in community. We're gonna negate all of that because of our tradition. Now, those of you who are under 40, under 30, before you throw any stones at those in the older generations, how many times have you said, boy, I liked it when we used to do in the last few weeks or the last few months, okay? It doesn't take long for the human heart to settle into something that I like and it's my preference. And I will tell you plainly, I'll tell you bluntly, I have lots of those sorts of conversations with people in their 20s and in their 30s because of replanting the church. We're trying to think of some new ways to do things. Well, we used to do this or we used to do that. I don't care. We're going to follow Jesus, amen? Sorry, that was, that was just, that was free of charge. Okay, back on point. What I, what the mean, what I mean to say about all of that is all of our hearts, this is not an older generation or younger generation thing. It means all of our hearts are prone to settle into our preferences our traditions, our routines, and we can be tempted, all of us, to elevate those above the word of God. We can elevate those above the word of God. If I, I'll just give you one other little quick example. If we, have these, we have these screens that we use, right? We display the lyrics, we display the songs, we display the, 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 the sermon and the, and the text and the scriptures. There used to be this thing in church where um, you would bring, what's it called? A Bible, and you would read along with the pastor. And then when it was time to sing, you'd open this other book called a hymnal, like a caveman, and you would sing along from the, from the pages of the hymnal. I'm just kidding. I read music. I love hymnals. I have two in my office. Um, you'd read the pages of the hymnal, and that's how you would know what was going on. And then uh, even just 25 years ago, these sorts of screens didn't exist in most churches. Now today, you'd be hard-pressed to find a church that didn't use some sort of a screen and some sort of projection system. If you showed up next week and me and the elders talked and prayed and we decided we we're going to go burn those in the front yard, I know there would be some 20-somethings who would riot, okay? If we handed you a, a, a hymnal and a book and you said, I can't believe this. Why are we, I like it when we used to, okay? Just think about your heart. Think about your preferences in this. Silly examples, but things that can lead us into an approach to God where we say, hey, I've got this thing figured out. I like this, I like that, I like this, and we don't actually come to the word of God itself. Continuing on, verse 14. Now, Jesus called the people to himself again. That's interesting. I don't know why he called the people to himself again. My guess is that he, they saw Jesus was getting into a rather heated debate with the Pharisees, and they maybe backed up a little bit. Like, we'll come back later, Jesus. You seem like you got some things going on. So Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. He is speaking, if you want to know, there is a, there's a food eating expelling. I mean, it is what you think it is. Our English translation obscures a little bit, but when it talks about what comes out of a person, it actually says, and goes into the drain, 
That's what Jesus is talking about. You're so focused on food, you're so focused on the externals, and you're not even paying attention about the heart. When he'd entered the house and left the people, uh, the disciples asked him about, this word's interesting to me, the parable. Not maybe the word I would have chosen for Jesus' analogy there, but that's the parable, the parable of the eating and expelling. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Here it is, listen. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. What you eat, it doesn't go into your heart. There's a problem with your heart and you're, you're looking at the surface level. You need to look deeper. You're looking at the top layer. You need to dive deeper. A little parenthetical sentence here. Thus he declared all foods clean. We'll come back to that in just a minute because that's important. And he said, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, I'm going to read this list slowly. I want you to think through these words. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. How about just a broad general category in case none of these specific ones. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, using your words to tear down, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is saying your assessment of the problem is too shallow. You think that the issue exists up here, but you're not going for the heart. Think of it this way. If you have a sickness and you go to the doctor and they say, what's wrong? I just cannot stop coughing. I'm coughing, I'm coughing, I'm short of breath. I now have popped blood vessels in my eyes because I just cannot stop coughing. I just cough, 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 cough all the time. That's an indication of a serious problem, right? You would not be a wise medical you know, physician if you then just decided to treat it with cough drops. Well, here, just take some cough drops. No, there's a deeper issue, something that needs to be addressed. We need to get to the heart of the matter. In the same way, these Pharisees, these scribes are looking at not, not even just sinful things, but the traditions or the breaking of even man-made traditions. But Jesus is saying, look, here's the problem. It's your heart. The issue goes all the way to the core of, you, of, core of who you are and from your heart outflows all of these sinful behaviors. There's another thing that's interesting here, this, this little parenthesis where Mark says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Here, Jesus is touching on yet another portion of the Old Testament scriptures, the, the food laws. Some of you have heard of this, so, but for those of you who haven't, let me just explain briefly. In the Old Covenant, there were certain foods that were restricted. The people of Israel would not eat pigs, for example, or snails and shellfish. There, these foods were off limits by command of God, not by tradition of elders, by command of God. They, again, I think there's one practical thing in that. Remember, they live in the desert they didn't have refrigeration, so I think it was wise of God to tell them to not eat sushi, okay? 
They all get salmonella and it'd be really unfortunate, right? I think there's a practical aspect, but I think more importantly, the deeper heart of the issue is again, God is teaching his people to say yes to some things and to say no to other things. It's an object lesson. Uh, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes the law as like a schoolmaster. And I always think of the analogy in my head, I think Pastor Doug Wilson used it, when you go to school, they give you a big fat pencil and they give you big lined paper and you write your letters really big like that. And, and that's an exaggerated demonstration to teach children how they are to write. But when they get mature, you no longer write like that. You just write naturally from the heart, as it were. So in the old covenant, God did give the people these commandments. And so I guess you could ask the question, this seems a little confusing, Jesus, because I just thought you said that the Pharisees were the ones who were throwing out commandments. They weren't following your scriptures. And now it looks, Jesus, it kind of looks like you're doing the same thing. You're saying we don't need to follow the food laws anymore? Mark very clearly thinks that that is what Jesus is saying. Thus he declared all foods clean. So if you ate bacon for breakfast this morning, take heart. You did not sin. In fact, you should probably go have some more this afternoon, right? (laughs) Jesus declared all foods clean. Why? Because he is the fulfillment of those laws. He was the point of what it was all about. Let me read you a quote from author and scholar Tom Wright about this, okay? You gotta think clearly about this. We have to make sure we don't fall into the same trap as the Pharisees. This is what uh, Tom Wright says. Was Jesus, therefore, despite what he had just said, setting aside scripture, which is where the laws about clean and unclean food come from? Yes and no. Yes, the Bible says don't eat pork and lots of other things. And Mark at least thinks Jesus is saying that this doesn't apply anymore. But no, no. Jesus' basic point is that the purity laws, including the food laws, don't actually touch the real human problem. And that is what the kingdom of God addresses. But behind this is the strong sense already here in Jesus and hammered out in the early church that what happened in Jesus brought the old scriptures, the whole covenant with Israel, to a new completion, a new fulfillment. The scriptures spoke of purity and they set up codes as, this is really important, signposts to it. Jesus was offering the reality. When you arrive at the destination, you don't need the signposts anymore, not because they were worthless, but precisely because they were correct. Do you understand that these certain laws, these food codes were given to point us to Jesus? Jesus, the one who is pure. Jesus, the one who is never defiled by sin. Jesus, the one who then shares that purity with us. That's the point of what is happening here. We have to get to the heart. We can't just look at the surface. We can't just look at the top layer. We really need to understand what's going on deeper in the heart. I remember I had a friend a number of years ago who um, he had built some houses and uh, the contractors who had done all the dirt work did a really bad job of the dirt work. So he built the house. He said, hey, I don't like this. This is not going to go well, but they said, just go for it. He did it, passed inspections, et cetera. A year later, one of the homeowners walked out and noticed there was a big crack in their paint. So they called out some people to come look at it, and they noticed that the foundation had actually sunk. I believe it was seven inches on one side. That's not good. Later, (laughs) a few months later, a sinkhole of sorts opened up and the house actually ended up collapsing. They had to tear down many of the houses in the neighborhood and rebuild them. How foolish would it have been for that person to look at the house and say, wow, what we need is some more paint. (laughs) And yet in our approach to sin, sometimes that's what we do. 
Jesus wants to get to the heart. Now, let me say this. If you are new, I am not usually this negative. (laughs) I am by nature a pretty optimistic and a happy person, so please forgive me. But this is the passage we're looking at today, and in it, Jesus is addressing some serious problems. I have outlined a bunch of problems. There's a lot of problems. Our hearts are cold against God, and our hearts elevate our preferences and our traditions above the commands of God, and our hearts uh, don't seek to get to the heart of the issue, but we try to put band-aids on problems, and we look at the external things. We've got a lot of problems here. So it's at the point like this, with three minutes left in the sermon, that you might ask, well, what's the solution How do we fix this problem? And if you have paid attention to much preaching in America, you might expect me to say, well, here are five steps to getting these problems solved. But I tell you what, we cannot do that. Our solution cannot come from us. We need a savior. We need the gospel. So you know what I'm gonna tell you to do? Nothing. I'm gonna tell you to hear what Jesus has already done for you. Jesus, who is God, entering into human history on a rescue mission to redeem defiled sinners, religious legalists like you and me. Jesus lives his entire life from a heart of joyful obedience. And I really want you to take this away. Jesus' heart was one of joyful obedience. Jesus' heart was not begrudging, just going through the motions. You know what it says? The Bible says that it was for the joy that was set before him. Jesus went to the cross and despised its shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of God. Did you know that Jesus had joy? Did you know that Jesus had tremendous difficulty and even the night of his arrest, the night of his betrayal, he prayed to the Father, hey, Father, is there any other way? If it's possible, let this cup pass for me. But you know what he said? Not my will, yours be done. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father from a right heart. From a right heart. Jesus went to the cross, died in our place for our sins, a death that you and I deserve because of our religious and sinful hearts. And on the third day, God rose him from the dead, conquering over sin, conquering over defilement, dressing us in his clean white robes that when he looks at us, he would not look at us as being sinful and defiled. He would see us as though we were as perfect as Jesus himself. Christian, do you know that that is how God looks at you? He looks at you through Jesus. Some of you are so bound up in fighting and pushing and striving and you can't even hear this message. You think there's got to be something for me to do and I tell you, you need the gospel of Jesus. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is good news, church, amen? This is really good news. I hope it encourages you. I hope you see that all these problems, all of these issues that are raised, prideful heart, dead, cold, religious heart, Focusing on the externals and not the heart. I mean, just all of these issues, they're all met in the gospel. Jesus' heart was not cold and unfeeling. He had joy. He had passion. Jesus' heart did not elevate the commandments of man. He followed the commandments of God perfectly. Jesus doesn't focus on just cleaning us up from the outside in. He gets right to the heart. And I'll tell you this. There's another verse in Philippians that just blows my mind. It says that, We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who wills and works in us to to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as we follow God, yes, we're supposed to work on things. We need to say no to sin. But in that, 
Jesus has joy and it's his good pleasure to work on us. Isn't that good? That even though we're not perfect, even though we still stumble, Jesus is joyful to work on us. Jesus' heart is one of joyful obedience to his father. I wanna close and give you um, five questions you can ask yourself, okay? I want you to test your heart. As you test your heart to see if there's any religion in there, I want you to ask the first question is, do I realize my own sinful tendency towards religion? Okay? Some of you think you're not religious because you're really good at being rebellious, and I would say you don't realize how religious sometimes rebellious can be about the rebellion, right? Like I always do this debauchery on Friday night, right? Like you can be very religious about your debauchery. Do you realize that your heart is very religious? Number two, ask yourself, am I repenting? Am I taking my sins seriously? Am I understanding that the sins that I've committed, A, flow out of a heart that is in desperate need of, of redemption, and B, caused my Savior to bleed on the cross? But number three, you need to ask yourself, am I rejoicing? Some of you get stuck on repenting. Repenting's good. It's not a bad word. It's a good word because it leads to rejoicing because God forgives us in Christ. So some of you need to rejoice, okay? Some of you need to dance, some of you need to remind your heart, hey, I can have joy. Am I rejoicing? Fourth question to ask is, am I resisting sin? Book of James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay, you need to hear the gospel and from that you can resist sin. Sin is a, sin is a I would use it this way, I'd say sin is a numbing agent. Sin numbs our hearts. Sin is what causes our hearts to grow cold towards God. So are you resisting sin? And then number five, the last question is ask, ask yourself, am I resting in the finished and completed work of Jesus? Or am I still thinking that I have to do something to earn God's approval? Am I resting in what Jesus has done? I hope these are helpful for you. This is not the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You shouldn't do a darn thing. You should receive and know that he has done everything. And as you ask yourself these questions, see God, where does my heart need your gospel? Where does my heart need your gospel? I want to call us to a time of, repent, of repentance. Well, that possibly, but response specifically now. I want to call us to a time of response. The first way that we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. And before I call the financial stewards up, let me say this. Some of you give out of ritual obligation duty. Today is an opportunity to repent of that and give out of joyful worship and response to Jesus. If you were a guest you are under no obligation to give. You're welcome to give if you would like, but we invite you to worship Jesus with your finances. You can give cash or check in the bucket. You can give online in, in CCB, like we mentioned, or if you'd like to text to give, there's a phone number for that. So I will call now the financial stewards forward, please. Go ahead and collect the offering, and I invite you to give worshipfully, not out of obligation. If it's a heart of obligation, not only does God not want your money, we don't want your money. Give worshipfully, okay? While they're doing that, I'm gonna have them throw up some discussion questions for us for you to ask yourself, for you to ask your family, for you to ask your community group. So first one is, what traditions do you hold on to above the word of God? Or second question, why is it so important? To, and I'm, actually, let me go back to that. I put, I put it black and white in that question. What traditions do you hold on to above the word of God? Because I didn't wanna let you off the hook. I'm sure there's one somewhere. So check your heart, okay? Second is, why is it so important to focus on the heart and not merely the actions or the words or the externals? Number three, how does the gospel empower us to live lives that are pleasing to God, not externally, but from the heart? And then lastly, the fourth question is, 
what is God's heart toward his children? Or what is Jesus' heart towards those whom he has saved? I want you to reflect on the joy that God has in his heart as he saves us and redeems us. We're also gonna respond with the celebration of communion, the celebration of the Lord's table. If you are a guest, you are welcome to join us at the table if you are a Christian. If you are not a Christian, then I invite you to give your sins to Jesus, receive his salvation, receive his healing, and come forward and take communion for the first time as a Christian. And here's what I'm gonna say. The end of most sermons, I invite you to stand, come forward for communion, and we can jump right in. And I love being a part of a church that celebrates communion every week. Growing up, most churches I was a part of did communion maybe quarterly or monthly. I love that every week we take the bread, we dip it into the the cup, and we remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for us. But, again, our hearts can turn it into a dead ritual. Let it be worship today, church. So before you stand up and before you come forward, I want you to take a minute to just sit and reflect on how God has cleansed you, how God has saved you, how God has freed you from the trap of religion. If you want to come forward, you are welcome to. Nobody's going to judge you for being the first in line. But I would invite you to take a few moments and reflect on the work of Jesus in your heart and in your life before you come forward for communion. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for sometimes when we get these Hard words like this, God, a difficult word, a challenging word. You do things in our hearts. You soften us. You shape us. You grow us. God, I pray right now as we respond through singing and through the celebration of the Lord's table, I pray that all of our um, religion, all of our legalism, all of our focus on the rules or just the traditions or whatever it might be would, would fade away. We would understand, God, that you've called us into relationship with you and we'd worship you from a heart that is pure, not because we are pure, but because you have given us your purity. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.